So Jesus, I am light to the world, John chapter 8. If you want to turn to John chapter 8, that would be great. We're going to be looking at some things. Uh, last week, we, we talked about, in John chapter 8, 1 through 11, verses 1 through 11, we looked at the story of the woman brought to Jesus, the woman had been caught in adultery, brought to Jesus, right? And that's just an amazing story, this unbelievable story that and the love of Jesus and the judgmentalness of the Pharisees and the scribes and just this whole scenario that, um, that played out. But one of the things God spoke to me this week was he started giving, putting a, a hunger in my heart to understand a little more of where this all took place. And so we live in the 21st century and things have changed a little bit since the first century or right after when Jesus was doing his thing, right? So Jesus lived during the time, the temple of Herod. So just a little history lesson. Uh, God had begun to move his people way back in the day, brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and he established the tabernacle. And some of you read about that in Exodus and Leviticus and how God, his presence and, and the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. And there was a certain uniform way of having this, the tabernacle was their center of worship. And so we won't go into all of that, but eventually the tabernacle uh, turned into, uh, and this is when King David came on the scene, he wanted to make a temple. And so God had put it in his heart. He wasn't able to do it, but his son Solomon did build this amazing temple in Jerusalem. So transition from tabernacle to temple. And it was where the manifest presence of God was on the earth. Okay, So a little different than we are now. Now we have Holy Spirit and his manifest presence is, is everywhere. It, it's a little bit different dynamic. Aren't you glad we don't have to go to Jerusalem or some location to have our sins forgiven and to experience anything of the presence of God? Right? So that's pretty cool. But in those days, that was what the temple was for. It was God's place on earth, right? And so Solomon had a temple. Um, Israel and Judah split as a, as, a, as a nation from one into two. Eventually they get taken into exile. And both of the, 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 the countries, Judah in the south and Israel in the north, are taken into captivity. And they, and they destroy that temple. So they come back and they build another temple. 70 years later, they start to build it. And when we get to Jesus' time, which is several hundred years later, uh, Herod has built, he's the, the king at that time and the ruler at that time, he has built this magnificent temple. I mean, the thing is huge. And I wanted to show you a few pictures today of the temple that was in Jerusalem at Jesus' time. Now, mind you, we don't have much left of that temple archaeologically now. Uh, one of the retaining walls on the side of the temple is what you might know as the Wailing Wall. It was where the, the Jews, you know, it's part of their, and you'll see them praying and sticking papers in the walls. It's just one limited little thing. But the mount of where the temple is, is where the Dome of the Rock is. So if you're familiar with Jerusalem and, and Islam and all of that, it's that golden dome in Jerusalem that the, the Muslims and Islam has, has conquered it and kept it for several thousand years now. And that is where the temple was. Now there's a Muslim shrine there, the Dome of the Rock. 
And so all the Jews have at this time is just this wailing wall, this one retaining wall on the side. And so just to give you a little picture, they've done some some different uh, uh, computer-generated things, and they take all the information. And so you'll find that uh, this is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day, okay? So the whole thing, the whole temple mount, the whole thing technically, the, the large structure is the temple, okay? Are you with me on that? And I was reading something this week. Do you know how, to get an idea perspective-wise, do you know how big that area right there, the temple itself, the whole thing? Think of this. It, it was 26 football fields would have fit in that. Wow. So think football field, 100 yards by, what is it, 70 yards or whatever. 26 football fields. That's how, that's how big this thing is. So it's not just a little temple. I mean, we're talking about a massive structure, okay? And so then you'll notice that there's kind of different areas to it. And so uh, this one this gives you a little idea. Um, on the, in the middle is the inner courts. We'll get to that in a second. You see the wide open space all the way around? That would have been what they called the court of Gentiles, okay? Gentiles meaning non-Jews, okay? And what that meant was, uh, that they were that's as far as anybody could go. So the court of Gentiles, like even Herod who made the, the, the temple, who initiated it and had it built, he couldn't go any farther than the court of Gentiles because that's what he was. Okay? And so it's interesting. So it's it's massive and it's huge and uh, that's the wide open space. But in the middle you'll find there's the other structures and just we won't go into all the detail, but the the, as you move closer into the middle, you would have different courts. And so, in the Bible, when you read Jesus went to the temple courts, which it does say in John 8, we'll take a look at it again here this morning, there was different layers and permission for people to go. So, the first level, if you will, is called the court of women. Okay, the court of women is, is signified because not just that only women could be allowed there, but women could come this far and no further. Okay? So, you got the Gentile, court of Gentiles is way on the outside. Then you have the court of women, which is the first area, and women Jews could come into that area. Okay? And, I'm just going to give you one more look here on this. this is another picture. Um, as you moved into it, so this area in the front, this wide area here is called the Court of Women, and it had along the tops, you, you can see it some in this model. This is actually a model somebody made. This isn't computer generated. This is a model, which I thought was kind of cool. In that area there, a couple things. Number one, it could fit 6,000 people could get in that court area. So it's not a tiny little court. It's pretty good size. And along the tops, you can see... See how there's people here? There was like a balcony or a gallery. You know, when, when President Trump made his speech for Congress the other day, a week ago, two weeks ago, you know how in the top there's a gallery where people can sit and visitors and stuff like that? That's kind of what this was like. The, the gallery would allow women to come this close. And as you got closer, um, it, you could they could come in, men and women could come into this court of women, and then the next layer was this wall right here. 
And uh, that was uh, where women could go that far, that far and no further. Men, Jews, could then go to the next level, what's called the court of Israelites or the court of men. And, the, and men, Israelites, could then go one step further. And then as you got closer to that big structure there, the big white structure, that is the, where the Holy of Holies is. That's where the priests are. And so when a sacrifice was made, you know how they burned sacrifices, and this is how they did the sin, that uh, would have been in this area here. So behind this wall, right in this area, in fact, right over here on this side, was where the, alt- where the sacrifices were made, where the altar was. Men, Israelites, could go up to a certain line there, but then they had to stop, and only the priests could go on the side where the altar was and the lavers and all some of those the big things going on, right? And then, of course, inside the, the big, tall building there, that would be where it would be the Holy of Holies. So only the high priest, once a year, would go into that area. And so you'll see how it, you know, it's wide open, and then it gets smaller and smaller, and fewer people get to, to go in. So the reason I'm, I'm saying all this is for a couple reasons. We're, we're going to look at some things here this morning. Let's go back to John chapter 8. And just by way of review, last week we talked about how Jesus had been in the, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he had been doing some ministry and some teaching and all that stuff. And then it says at the end of chapter 7, and then here in the beginning of chapter 8, that Jesus goes away to the Mount of Olives, he rests for the night. And then it says in verse 2, Then at dawn Jesus appeared in the, say it with me, temple courts. So we're talking about this area right here. Okay, the temple courts. Again, and soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. So he sat down and taught them. Verse 3. Then then in the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the, say it with me, crowd. So we're talking about a big bunch of people. Broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Now, one of the things we're gonna we're gonna look at like, this that was an amazing story, right? It was in the temple courts, and as we'll see here in just a second, that court of women was where a lot of things took place. It's where the tithes were brought. Remember that story where Jesus sees the woman give the, the mites, the two mites? And, you know, and, and it's interesting because in this story, he's with his disciples and they see a woman give, you know, give some money, a small amount. And then, they, and then he sees another person bring in a big show and, they, you know, all the money and they make a big show out of it. Do you know that that's in the court of women? That one of the names that Herod gave to the court of women is the treasury. The treasury. So in that court of women area, let me just go back here for you. In that court of women area, that wide open area there, there were 13 horn-shaped boxes where people would bring their money. And so spread around this court of women were basically 13 offering baskets. And so people would come and give their give their tithes, they would give their money. It became known as the treasury or the treasury room because it was this big open area where people would come, Okay. So Jesus is doing this teaching, and uh, he, he, the woman they bring they bring the woman in, and now mind you, it's 
it's in the court of women because she's able to be brought in. It couldn't have been farther in. It had to be a place where only a woman could be brought, i.e. the court of women. All right. So last week we went to that. If you haven't, if you weren't able to be here, there's a podcast on our website and on our Facebook page. You can listen to that. It was really fun. But Jesus does that whole thing where they want to trap him in a mosaic uh, law and he starts drawing on the dust some things we don't know what. He says, he who has not uh, had a lustful thought or sinned, you know, throw the first stone, all his accusers back away. So in verse 9, we'll pick up the, the story there. In verse 9, this is from last week. He says, upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left, there it is again, the crowd, this large gathering of people, one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, with a convicted conscience, until finally, verse 10, until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman there, standing, still standing there in front of him. So he stood back and said to her, Dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, Then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go and from now on, be free from a life of sin. Jump down to verse 20 in your Bibles. It says, Jesus taught all these things while standing in the treasure room of the temple. So it's interesting. Sometimes in the Bible, we know exactly where stuff is, but mostly we kind of like, where's Jesus? Is he on a mountaintop? Is he in the wilderness? You know, is he around the lake? We don't know really. But in this particular passage, in this story, we know exactly where Jesus is standing. Okay, so just by way of looking back at this picture, you know, we see that Jesus, we know that he's somewhere in that court of women for a couple of reasons. One, it tells us that's where the treasury is, and that's where the treasury is. So we know he's in that area. We also know that the woman has been brought, so it's, it's not in a farther in place in the temple where only men could go. There's a woman there. And so we find that Jesus is in this exact spot. Now here's an interesting other picture. Let me, let me just read this to you. This was in a commentary that I read. It says, In the treasury where it was spoken, John 8, 20, stood two, or possibly four, colossal golden lampstands on which hung a multitude of lamps lighted after the evening sacrifice and then probably every, you know, every evening at least during the Feast of Tabernacles. Diffusing their brilliance, it is said, over all the city. Around these, the people danced with great rejoicing. And so in the court of women, you can see kind of here, there's these huge, they look like menorahs here. They may or may not have been shaped like menorahs, but we do know they were massive. They, they are measured to be 86 feet tall. And they would have a guy who would, one of the priests would put oil in like a backpack and have to shimmy up this pole all the way up to the top, dump all his oil and light it. And remember, this is really interesting. Was there electricity at this time? Right. So no street lamps, no home lights, no nothing. How, how did you get light in those days? Fire. Fire, right? They have oil lamps or they had candles, that kind of thing, you know. How many of you know that it was probably real dark in general, especially at night, 
with just little bits of light here and there by bonfires or campfires or in homes. Do you know what I'm saying? But at the temple, in the court of women, you had two or four, depending on, on, the, on the research there, massive, 86 feet tall, huge lantern lamps shining forth. So you know when Jesus says, you know, a city on a hill can't be hidden? Jerusalem is actually on a hill, and the temple is actually a mount on, you know, it's, it's a higher up thing. Can you imagine in the darkness of the time, looking over at the temple, the place where Jesus, I'm sorry, where, where God's presence dwells, and see this huge shafts of light from these massive poles right here. <laughs> from verse 2, we find that he's come back from the Mount of Olives and he starts teaching and a crowd gathers around him. So go to verse 12. It says this, Then, everybody say it with me, Then, <laughs> Jesus said, Jesus was teaching, verse 2, big crowd, Pharisees come in, make a big scene, try to embarrass this woman, try to trap Jesus. He deals with it. He brings hope and life to this woman. Verse 12, then he goes back to teaching again. Now, imagine, maybe it's later in the day. Maybe they've just lit these massive lamps, these massive uh, menorahs or whatever. And Jesus then says, I am light to the world. <laughs> you can imagine the point Jesus was making that day? I am the light. <laughs> you know, look around you. You see these massive things of light? That's not really light. I'm the light of the world. I am light to the world. And those who embrace me will experience life-giving light. And they will never walk in darkness. Never walk in darkness. You know, the other thing I was thinking this week, putting these two stories side by side, always with the story of the woman caught in adultery, he says, go and sin no more. I've always gotten the idea that she left. You know, go and sin no more. But think about it for a second. If you're the woman who's just had a horrible experience and all of a sudden this man not only doesn't condemn you or throw stones at you, but he says, look, now you can be free from all this darkness because sin equals darkness. I have a pretty good feeling she stuck around. You know, would you want to hear more from the person that just revolutionally changed your life? Or would you go, hey, thanks, see ya, and then walk away? <laughs> you know, I kind of have a feeling she stuck around and she was like, you know, I, I, I need to hear more. And it's so interesting. Jesus says, I am light to the world. And he says, he says that those who embrace me will experience life-giving light. You know, when she was committing adultery, she was embracing somebody else, wasn't she? I mean, technically we won't get too technical there, but, you know, she's embracing somebody else, but she really was embracing darkness. Because sin, everybody knows adultery is wrong. Everybody knows, you know, like the law was very clear, but even in her heart of hearts. And here Jesus is making a contrast between light and darkness. And he says, those who embrace me will experience life-giving light, and they will never walk in darkness. 
Do you know what he's doing to that woman and everybody in the crowd? He's offering them a revolutionary path, a new way of doing something. I am light of the world. And she's sitting here. Can you imagine? She's here? And he's saying this in these huge lights that are shining. And, you know, lights to, the, to that first century people would have been flames, right? And how often does God deal with flames in the Israelites' life, right? You remember the pillar of fire when they were with the Red Sea coming out of Egypt? That was how he let them. Later on, we're going to get the book of Acts, and we have the pillar of fire followed by tongues of fire on all of them. Like, there's this light, flame, fire thing going on throughout all of Scripture. If you want to do a word a study on it, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. But I want you to go with me. Just put a pause there in, in John chapter 8. Let's go back to John chapter 1. Because John 1 actually starts with this same message. Some of you know, know some of these verses by heart, I'm sure. But in the New American Standard, John chapter 1 says, John starts his whole book of writing. He says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then he talks a little bit about John the Baptist, and he jumped down to verse 9, he says this. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him verse 11 he came to his own and his own and those who were his own did not receive him you know there's this interesting thing about the Pharisees isn't it the people who had the most information and should have known actually were the most ignorant and didn't know and we find them not receiving Jesus very well at all I am the light of the world. I am the light of life. This life was the light of men. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus uh, says in, uh, in the verse 12 here, I am the light of the world, and those who embrace me will experience life-giving light. You know, when he says that, he's actually reaffirming the beginning of John, and he's He's wanting to bring the people into a whole new experience of him. You know, it's interesting. We sang the song, Great I Am, this morning, right? We sing about we sing about the great I am. And again, I am is a loaded statement. Anybody remember why I am would be a loaded statement? Anybody know? Yeah. The great, right. I am, all capital letters. Uh, Yahweh, you know, like, they're, the Jews at that time weren't even allowed to say God's name in that way. And here Jesus comes on the scene and starts throwing I am around. He also says, I am the source of, li- of the river of life. Remember in chapter 7, we just saw that. And he says, I am the son of the father. So he's, he's making a bunch of I am statements. And here he goes again. Can you imagine every time he says the word I am, 
how that would have graded and really gotten on their last nerve <laughs> of the Pharisees, right? Oh, they would have, it would have been really rough for them. And yet, how many of you know truth is truth? Is Jesus the bread of life? Is Jesus the light to the world? Is that really why he came? And just because, as in John 1, 11, where it says, and his own did not receive him, just because the Pharisees aren't receiving him doesn't mean that it's, it changes the truth in any way. In fact, the next verse in John chapter 1, but to as many as did receive him, it says it gives the right to become children of God. Aren't you glad we're all in the family of God? <laughs> if you look through the Bible, there's a lot of light and there's a lot of fire. And, and again, I was thinking about this. Like when Jesus says, if you will embrace me, you'll experience life giving light. Uh, how many of you were raised in the country? Anybody raised in the country? Okay. Were you ever out in the country and you didn't have a flashlight or some kind of light? It's really dark, isn't it? Like it's dark, dark. Like, if you're, and I'm sure you have, you ever been in a place that's so dark, you put your hand in front of your face, and you can't see your fingers, you're like, you're doing this, and you literally can't see your hand in front of your face. Well, you know, this was a time in history where they had fire and flames, but, you know, it was probably pretty dark. And there was probably a lot of fear in terms of darkness, and that was tangible for them to experience. Would you agree? Like, not everybody walked around with a little thing of oil and a lamp. And then, as we even see in some of the parables, the lamps can lose oil and go out. You know, and then you're in darkness again. So when Jesus says things like, you will never walk in darkness, the Aramaic and the Greek both kind of have a double negative thing going on there. Not, not that they cancel out, but it means emphatically, never, no, never, will you be in darkness? Like he really wants to make a point. If you're in me, you're not going to be in darkness. And again, I, he's not talking about physical darkness, right? He's talking about the kind of darkness that that woman who was sitting in the front row <laughs> that had just been brought in by the Pharisees. How many of you know that the, the greater amount of grace that God has shown you, the more you appreciate the light in your life, right? The darker you a person has been, the greater the light. And, of course, all of us have experienced that on one place or another. But Jesus is saying, you know what? You never have to walk in darkness again. And that woman, you could almost imagine if, if she's still in the crowd, but even others, her eyes would just be like, I don't have to live in sin anymore? You understand, they're sitting in the temple, and the only way to get your sins forgiven is by getting an animal, bringing it to the priest, and having them take it into their special area, kill it, drain its blood, and throw it on the thing and burn it up. Now it's interesting. Let me just go back and show you one other picture. This is the, uh, the picture from the, the court of women. There's, there's, a, there's a, a slash there because on one side, it's during one of the celebrations, you can see all the white priests you know, doing their thing. On the other side, you see just kind of normal everyday thing where there's, you see how the women are all kind of, and people are packed into this upper area, you know? And I, I can almost envision on that day that it's right after the Feast of Tabernacles. It's like the day after. 
there's probably a good chance there's still a lot of people in Jerusalem. And it was pretty busy anyway on a regular basis. And you can see these people that have all experienced great darkness. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. And just to make his point even more, you see those big poles there with the lights on them? Just to kind of emphasize his point, he's like, these massive lights that expand the darkness, and these beams of light are shining into the sky. For us, it would be similar to, have you ever been to a a party or some kind of, where they open a new business and they have those spotlights in front kind of doing this? You know how they shoot into the sky like that? To, to them, that would have been a similar experience. That much light in one place was incredible. And I always think of this. Do you think Jesus timed his I am the light of the world speech to match up with where he was and what was going on? Like Jesus knew that at some point he was going to say, I'm the light of the world. And he didn't do it out in the wilderness at nighttime with a little lamp. <laughs> nope. He stood next to the biggest light that there was in all of, of Jerusalem and all of Israel. And said, hey, you see that? That's nothing compared to who I am to this world. Verse 13. Verse 13 is interesting, isn't it? It says this. That Jesus, after he says he's the light of the world, will never have to walk in darkness. He's giving hope and life to the people after the interruption of the woman caught in adultery. The verse 13 says, the Pharisees were immediately offended. (laughs) They were immediately offended. Anybody just want to say with me? Of course they were. (laughs) Because they're religious, and religious people get offended about a lot of things. Can I just stick this in, almost like a side sermon? If somebody says to you that they're offended, you should be careful. A religious spirit is easily offended. And I've been around church enough, and you have too, that there are people that are actually offendable. Do you ever have people around you that you're kind of afraid on what you might say or do because it's not if but when they're going to get offended in that? I would give you freedom and encourage you to avoid said people at all costs. Because what happens when they get offended? Destruction, right? They become God. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, there's some kind of destruction is going to happen in some way, shape, or form. See, I don't think we're called to be offendable. In fact, I believe that we're that there is no offense that we should ever pick up. We, that's a whole other sermon for another time. I just want to give you a cautionary thing, that if you're around people that are offendable, oftentimes they have a religious spirit, especially if they're in the church. And these guys ooze it, don't they? The Pharisees get offended and mad, and they're angry. They want to kill him. And I mean, they're, it's like they're perpetually offended. So I look, this verse makes me laugh when I read it. The Pharisees were immediately offended. Of course they were. They're religious. They have a religious spirit, right? And said, and then they said this: "You're just boasting about yourself!" Exclamation point. Since we only have your word on this, it makes your testimony invalid. And it's interesting, because how many of you know that Jesus' words are supremely valid? Right? And yet, a religious spirit twisted their thinking and their understanding to the point where the opposite, they, they were embracing the opposite of the truth. 
I think that's why Jesus got so angry at them. Because how many of you know that an offended person, a religious spirit, can actually do more damage, let's just say, in a church than someone who's living right? Have you ever experienced this in a church in some way, shape, or form? Somebody gets all religious and they get their, you know, on and they're offended and the pastor did this wrong or this other person did this wrong. Blah, blah, blah. And what usually happens? People get drawn to that cancer and it actually grows and eventually they leave. There'll actually be a breaking apart. And Jesus says things like, I want you to have unity and this cancerous religious spirit and the offended nature actually brings disunity, doesn't it? So again, I don't want to go into a big thing on that, other than to say, if someone says to you they're offended, a red flag should go up, and you should proceed with caution. Be careful what they say to you, because what they will say to you, they will say about you very soon afterwards. Okay? Anyway, they're offended, they get mad, and they start attacking the very validity of the Son of God. You see how odd that is? They're actually at odds with the God they say they serve because they're not accepting Jesus and His Word. How many of you want to get it right? Anybody want to just raise your hand and say, man, God, I want to get it right. I don't want to have to be thinking of this opposite of the way you think. And that's what happens. So Jesus responds, which is interesting, isn't it? Verse 14, Jesus responded to them. Where just a few verses earlier, when they're attacking him regarding the, the woman caught in adultery, what did Jesus do? Or not do? He purposely didn't respond to their accusation. What does that tell us, do you think? In one case, Jesus responds. The other case, he doesn't respond. What do, you, what do you think that tells us as followers of Christ? Yeah. How do we know the difference? When to be silent and when to respond? This is why I'm always perplexed by why Jesus argues with the Pharisees. I don't think it's for the sake of the Pharisees. No. I think it's for the, the crowd and the people that are listening. No. Because if nothing else, what does, he, what does he do with the Pharisees? He exposes them for the frauds that they are, Right? I mean, isn't that what he really ultimately does with all of this? But he does respond here, and I'm just saying, if anybody was in touch with the Holy Spirit and with the Father, it's Jesus. Right? And there are times he's going to want us to open our mouth, and there's other times he's going to want us to be quiet. But verse 14, he responds. We'll, we'll, we'll get through this quick. We're almost done. Jesus responded, Just because I am the one making these claims doesn't mean they're invalid. For I absolutely, and follow this, I absolutely know who I am, where I've come from, and where I'm going. But you Pharisees have no idea about what I'm saying. Do you get the feeling Jesus is confident in who he is? This is a great verse. I would encourage you to to highlight it and maybe dwell on it a little bit this week. Jesus knew when to respond and not to respond. Why? Because he says, he makes it really clear. He says, listen, I absolutely... No, I am where I've come from and where I'm going. Yeah, it's almost like a past, present, and future kind of thing. Like he knows exactly confidently his identity and who he is, we would say, in Christ. He would say, in the Father. In chapter 14, 
a little bit later, a few chapters, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming, and he's talking to his disciples, and this is a few chapters down the road from us, but just listen to what he says. He's talking about sending the Holy Spirit to them, and, and the Holy Spirit is going to be coming. And in verse chapter 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Helper being capital H, helper, uh, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, right? That he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. We see that in the story, right? They can't receive Jesus as this valid truth because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a while, while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And then look at verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What does that verse tell us? It's a scary thought, but what does it tell us? We can have what Jesus has. That identity, he says, I know who I am, I know where I'm from, I know where I'm going. Like, this verse in John 17, 20 says that, that Jesus and the Father are one, and then because we're one with Jesus, we're one with the Father. It's like we've been accepted into the Holy Trinity. <laughs> if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. Like the same relationship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have for all of eternity, past and future, we've just been invited into that, into that circle of, of family. It's, it's unbelievable. It's epic. So Jesus knows when to respond. You know, he knows what to do because he says, you know, I, Father, and I are one, and, and you're in me, and, and we're all in this together. And he can say exactly that, that, they, uh, that he knows who he is, he knows where he's going, and he, and he knows where he's from. How many of you feel like in your spirit right now, God is wanting you to have that truth, not just in your head, but in your heart? Do you feel that right now? I just feel like God is saying, listen, that same unity and that same togetherness is actually offered to you and I. And I would just say, yes. In fact, as we close, why don't we just stand this morning? I just want us to, if you want to just lift your hands, let's let Holy Spirit just begin to cement some things in our heart. God, we thank you today that you have given us some things in this life that are almost beyond comprehension. You are the light of the world. You are the life that we embrace. We never, ever have to walk in the darkness of sin ever again. It never has to taint our lives. It never has to dominate our horizon and our choices. We never have to walk in shame or guilt or regret. We get to walk in the light of life the very reason you were sent to this earth. Holy Spirit, I thank you today that you not only are around us, you actually are in us. You've been promised to us. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just thank you for inviting us and allowing us to step into 
your relationship together. It's pretty big for us to, to get that in our spirit and minds, but we ask that you would help us to not only have an awareness with our thinking, but revelation in our spirit. Anybody say yes to that this morning? Yeah.